Are you ready for a new journey this fall? Join Dr. Patricia Cooney Hathaway, Professor of Spirituality and Systematic Theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, as she leads an inspiring online course called An Introduction to Spirituality. In this college-level course, dive into the depths of the Christian spiritual life, discover how spirituality goes beyond religious practices, and how it shapes how we live our faith every day. Dr. Cooney Hathaway will guide you to understand God's presence in your life and equip you with tools to deepen your relationship with God. Visit shms.edu slash online to learn more or enroll today. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's so good to be with you, Ashley, and we have a rad show coming up for you today. We sure do. We are talking to Brian McCarthy about psychedelics and what Catholics should think about them. Brian teaches philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh-Greensburg, and he's the president of the Pittsburgh Psychedelic Society. Yep, and he's the author of a recent scholarly paper, Christianity and Psychedelic Medicine, A Pastoral Approach. Disclaimer, we're not necessarily advocating for taking psychedelics, but this conversation is super important. I was very impressed by Brian's writing and his work. Um, I read a great book by Michael Pollan a couple of years back called How to Change Your Mind. And psychedelic drugs are getting more and more uh, play in the medical field for treating things like addiction and different mental disorders. Like you might think of this as like, you know, party drugs, but a lot of people use these to, to have really deep spiritual encounters. Um, and so we, we get into all of that that with Brian. But yes, we are not advocating for psychedelics, just having a very deep conversation about them. Yeah, it's fascinating. You're going to love it. So make sure you stick around for that. But first, uh, what's on tap this week, Ashley? We are having one of our old favorites, the old fashioned. So yeah. some Maker's Marks, some bitters, some ice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian gave us a couple drink recommendations, but I my, I stopped listening at old fashioned because <laughs> it's, it's unbeatable. Yep. So cheers. cheers. Before our conversation with Brian and Signs of the Times, we talk about the new working document for the Synod on Synodality, and then this wild case out from California where an employer brought a fake priest to his restaurants and encouraged his workers to confess their work sins to him. So stick around for all of that, but first we have a few words about our sponsors this week. Ashley, I don't know about you, but I love learning. I love the idea of being in a classroom in school. But honestly, I just like don't know when I would ever do it. I've got this career in New York, uh, pretty busy. It just doesn't really seem feasible. Well, I have good news for you, Zach. You can earn a master's degree focused in Franciscan theology from anywhere in the world. And, you know, this is a Jesuit podcast, but we do love the Franciscans quite a bit. And this master's program from the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego is a blend of academic engagement and spiritual reflection. It's got this online format, and I will say that's that's great. You can do it from anywhere in the world. But the University of San Diego has a beautiful campus. I was just there. So you are going to want to visit if you have the <laughs> chance. Um, but it's online, and the program's designed so that you can learn at your own pace. And you'll be able to connect with fellow students and instructors in a respectful and down-to-earth environment because people in San Diego are 
nothing if not down to earth. That's so true. Uh, and it's about learning to think critically, consider different views, and analyze sources and perspectives. The program emphasizes creating space for mutual respect, which is a true Franciscan value. Yes, and you can do this all in just 24 months, and you'll be taught by world-renowned faculty and instructors from the Franciscan School of Theology. Yeah, so you're going to want to visit sandiego.edu slash theologicalmasters to learn more about the Master of Theological Studies Franciscan Theology Program. That's sandiego.edu slash theologicalmasters. Are you a Catholic artist or artisan looking for creative and spiritual support? Artisans of Jesus helps writers, musicians, designers, podcasters, marketers, animators, influencers, and more give and receive mutual support. It's like a co-op. You can offer your talent to another project and receive help as well. Artisans of Jesus can help you learn technical and media skills, and members have access to a team of chaplains for spiritual conversations. You can even showcase your work on the website. This is your opportunity to collaborate with like-hearted people on your creative passion. Help fellow artists express God in all media. Visit www.artisansofjesus.org to find out more. That's www.artisansofjesus.org. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of the show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week we are bringing you news about the ongoing Synod on Synodality, which is going to have its first General Assembly this October. And this week, the Vatican released its working document, known by its Latin name, Instrumentum Laboris. Which is not a Harry Potter spell, I've been told. But, but if it, it is, I would use to make you work. <laughs> <laughs> make me do my work? Impossible. I'm impervious to Instrumentum Laboris. Um, so it, it essentially, it's a working doc. So what it, what is the purpose of this doc, right? Um, it's They're very clear it's not necessarily a, a document of church teaching. Um, it's more meant to serve as like a, a summary of what's happened so far and sort of set the ground rules for what the discussions are going to be like at the uh, October Assembly this fall. Right. And one of the most interesting part of parts of the document is they, they actually have worksheets, some some homework for participants in the synod that, that give uh, questions for discernment on the main themes of the synod, which is uh, communion, participation, and mission. So we'll get into more of the details, but first to recap how we got here. So yeah. Far. So Pope Francis kicked this off in 2021. We're going to have a synod on synodality, um, which you know I have struggled to figure out what that means necessarily. Uh, but I, I feel like it's becoming clearer. I, I finally think I'm starting to understand it a little bit more. Well, so I think the the main word to help you understand it is consultative. Like it, we're trying to create a, a way of being church that's not just top down. Pope tells bishops what to do. Bishops tell priests what to do. Priests tell lay people what to do. It's they really want to listen to the entire church and to devolve authority to different levels of the church. Yeah, that's right. And that's going to mean, you know, changing some structures and ways of doing things that we've done in the Catholic Church. So since 2021, there's been a number of phases, basically starting at the local level and slowly working their way up to uh, the most universal level in the church. So that's the Vatican. So we started with, you know, parishes and diocesan uh, levels, and then that moved up to a national and continental level. Um, and we're finally entering this universal phase, which is, you know, where all these people are going to come together at the Vatican and talk about what uh, everyone else has talked about in the church and these other parts of the synod. Right. So this document kind of sets the agenda for that big meeting. I think it's going to be over 350 participants, uh, bishops, priests, uh, lay leaders, uh, young people, maybe us. You never yeah, know. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Um, so, it, you know, I was... 
fascinated by a couple of the things that were brought up in this document. I wanted to get some of your reactions too. It gives some, you know, descriptions of, you know, what are, what does a synodal church look like? And it kind of, you know, it says, oh, it's one that listens. It's one that's consultative, as you said. Um, So that's helpful for helping me visualize it. But then it gives, as you said, in these worksheets, there's all of these questions that it asks the church to consider. And I'll be honest, I was just like, there is a lot here. I mean, so what, what kind of questions are in these worksheets? So one of the more meta ones is like, what does it mean to be church? What does it mean to be a synodal church? Which, as we just said, we're still trying to figure out. And I mm-hmm. guess this, the participants of the synod still are trying to figure out. Um, and, you know, they kind of, they one of the things they, the organizers of this meeting keep saying, you know, this is not about church teaching. It's not about putting out a new document. It's about a process. Yes. Um, which is not to say there won't be any products after the process, but um, I was struck by that. And also there, it addresses questions like how is the church supposed to respond to global injustices? So there's a you know a heavy emphasis on migration and war and climate change. Yeah, which is not something that a lot of when U.S. Catholics think about the hot button issues of the church, those are often not the top priorities. It's often, you know, women in the church, LGBT Catholics, divorced and remarried Catholics. And those are also topics that are addressed in this document. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It does not shy away from that at all. It, so it delves into how do you know how do we include more people? Um, what is the it, it you know devotes a lot of attention so uh, to the role of women in the church. So I think we can expect a pretty thorough discussion on that this October. Um, and then there's other stuff too, just th- that I would have never even thought about. Like um, how do we make the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church more present in in the life of the Roman Church? Right. So uh, you know, for example, like Eastern. Catholic churches have had married priests for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, And, you know, the Roman church, I think, is the only right within the Catholic church that still requires celibacy of its priests. Um, So that, I mean, I think that's going to come up too, which I I have no idea how they're going to get through all this um, in just one session in October. Yeah. And and even with all that is included in this document, I, I feel like I should mention things that aren't brought up, which I think some people who are already skeptical about this synodal process might take as confirmation of of why they were skeptical. So you will notice that, you know, abortion, euthanasia is not brought up in this document. Uh, Marriage is only brought up in the context of divorce and married priests and that that sort of thing. And so I guess one concern I have is that this could become a self-reinforcing process where the people who are skeptical don't participate. And then the document's aren't going to reflect their concerns. And so they're going to be like, ah, see, I was right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think to really evaluate that, we'd have to go back and look at some of the the reports that came out of the like continental phases. So like these are these were the syntheses that, you know, came out of North America, South America, Europe, Middle East, Oceania, Asia. Um, What did those say? Like, are, are those are those things like really present in those documents? You know, I will admit I have not you know, read through those with a fine tooth comb. Well, I guess what I'm saying is they wouldn't be present in those documents because the skeptical people wouldn't have taken place in the local discussions. We we know that only 1% of Catholics took part in a synod discussion. So right. that's, it's not a representative sample. Well, well, but, you know, if one, so 1% of Catholics is a ton of people that's in the still world. That's a lot of people. <laughs> that's a lot of, it's a major consultation that's taken mm-hmm. place. Um, and it's not to say, it, because the synod is ongoing, right? Like if you, I think, 
this document is supposed to also like be filtered out back to the rest of the church. It is not meant to just be this thing that happens at the Vatican and only at the Vatican. I think, you know, if people feel like these things were left out and they need to be talked about more, um, that's still on the table, it seems, from my reading of, of the document. Yeah, totally. And one of the organizers kind of responded to this, to this critique of it, you know, only reflecting more, quote unquote, progressive concerns. And he said, you know, just because there's talk of immigration in this document doesn't mean this is a synod on immigration. It's a synod on synodality. So it's like the topics aren't exactly the point, even though they are part of the process. Yeah. One of the things I'm stealing myself over is like the document mentions like, look, when this is all said and done with, uh, it's going to feel inadequate. Um, it, it, the, it will feel like we didn't do enough. Um, and that's okay, right? Like it, sort of dealing with that inadequacy and that in, the sense of incompleteness is where is an invitation for the spirit to kind of move in and do its work. And so um, it really is trying to kick off an ongoing thing. But, you know, we're going to find out who the delegates are, who, who's going to be actually attending the Synod soon. We've kind of got the the questions for discernment that are the topics that are up for discussion this October. So this is really starting to take shape. Um, and so, you know, Jesuitical is going on break at the end of this month. So after next week's episode, hopefully you all will take the summer break to read the, the working document in its entirety. Um, but when we get to the fall, we're going to have a much better sense of, you know, who's going to be attending it, uh, what the topics are and what the major headlines we're going to be reading are. So stay tuned. What's our next story, Ashley? So our next story comes from the Diocese of Sacramento, where employees came forward to complain about the fact that their employer had brought a fake priest to their restaurant on working hours and encouraged them to go to confession and maybe bring up some of the, the sins that were hindering their productivity. <laughs> this, this is a level of like your boss trying to screw you that I did not know was possible. Yeah, we work at a Catholic company. We've never had confession offered to us at the office. Yeah, which I'm not sure I would go to confession with a coworker. I yeah. feel like definitely, I probably not, right? No. no. Yeah, okay. Um, but so this company, uh, K. Garibaldi, Inc., um, has reached a settlement with the Department of Labor for labor law violations, um, which the department called, quote, among the most shameless end quote, acts of worker exploitation. One employee, you know, testified that she went to confession during work and that the fake- Quote, priest, unquote. Yeah, <laughs> confession. And the priest, quote, unquote, asked her about her sins, quote, unquote, which involved like, oh, have you ever arrived late? Have you ever uh, stole from the employer? Um, have you ever, you know, taken breaks when you weren't supposed to? Like these kind, like pretty weird questions that, you know, mm -hmm. um, seem pretty targeted based on the context. Yes. And you will not be surprised to hear that this employer was maybe trying to silence his workers, uh, maybe prevent or, you know, not have to pay back pay because they had been taking money from the tip jar to give to managers. And so by gathering this information on his employees, he thought maybe they would be less likely to come forward with complaints about other workplace violations. I don't know what circle of hell is, is reserved for, for something like this, but I think, I think how evil this kind of thing is. Like to, to hire a fake priest to get people to confess sins um, is really horrible. But I mean, this, so the Sacramento, the Diocese of Sacramento has said that they are, quote, completely confident that the man in question is not a priest of the diocese. So um, if your boss says like, hey, to improve morale at the company, I've decided to bring a priest for confession, you know, maybe just double check credentials. You know, I'm not saying if you work, maybe if you do work at a Catholic place, that's more of a common thing. Um, but even still, you can never be too sure. Just trust the uh, the old journalistic adage. If your mother tells you that she loves you, you better check it out. 
<laughs> All right. And now stick around for our conversation with Brian McCarthy. Joining us from Pittsburgh is Brian McCarthy. Brian teaches philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, Greensburg. He is the president of the Pittsburgh Psychedelic Society, and he's the author of the recent scholarly paper, Christianity and Psychedelic Medicine, a Pastoral Approach. Welcome to Jesuitical, Brian. Thank you. Appreciate that. I feel like it's funny that we call it like a scholarly paper. Like, of course, it's a scholarly paper, but I feel like we added scholarly (laughs) so people don't get like just glaze over. It's psychedelic and be like, oh, these hippies are talking (laughs) about their drugs again. Yeah, it's very important with this topic. That's true. Now, do do you encounter that resistance among your colleagues in the academy where it's like, oh, Brian's writing about uh, shrooms again? And you're like, no, this is serious Um, scholarly work. No, no. Um, In fact, I... You know, I had sat down with my boss when I first decided I was going to start working on this topic. And I just said, is this all right? And he said, oh, my gosh, this is like the most promising area of research I've heard in a while. (laughs) I mean, he didn't put it in quite that. He didn't put it in quite that way. It's not like he was bagging on my colleagues or anything like that. But he was just he was really pumped about it. And so am I, clearly. Oh, man. All right. So this is a relatively new topic for us and our listeners. So we want to lay down some of some of the basics. So when we are talking about psychedelics, what what are the drugs we're talking about? And what are the intended effects of said drugs? Well, the category is getting very elastic these days. People just kind of add in whatever has something like the effects and something like the medical application that they're looking for into this giant list. But uh, classically, it was one called uh, LSD, one called psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms, one called DMT, and one called mescaline. And another one that's classically not considered a psychedelic, but that some people sometimes call an intactogen is MDMA, which is uh, the street name is ecstasy. And, um, and besides one, mushrooms, are about. these all like made in a lab or are some of them, uh, are they naturally occurring? A few of them are what's called semi-synthetic. Uh, so MDMA, there's a sassafras plant that they get it from the roots and then they isolate part of that and then do something with it in a lab that I don't understand because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> um, and and then uh, and then that produces the MDMA. And a similar story can be told with LSD, which comes from a, a fungus called ergot uh, that shows up on rye. And what are generally like the the effects of of the drugs? At least as you know, most people when they hear the word psychedelics, because um, some people might when they hear that word they they might just hear like some flashback to something they were told in school about it putting holes in their brains um but or what just right. like images of hippies in the 60s like tripping out seeing colors <laughs> yes true the word means technically mind manifesting or that's the usual translation it can be translated to some other things but that's kind of the what you're going to see in print anywhere what that means is that these drugs uh, impart the ability for us to have insights about things and to be very, very aware of what's happening with us on a subjective sort of conscious kind of level. And so that's what they're going for. Now, different ones of them will have different variations on that. So LSD and uh, and psilocybin are both going to have a colorful kind of geometric thing happening, and that'll happen in 
DMT as well. But DMT, depending on how it's taken, if it's smoked, it'll sort of transport the person who's smoking it into like a whole other realm. And MDMA doesn't really have any of that colorful stuff. It's just a, um, it's just a, a an empathy uh, kind of response. Uh, in combination with a couple of other things. And maybe this is sort of like, this sort of gets at the heart of a, a debate, but what is the, what's the difference between these, this category of drugs and say like alcohol? Because, you know, on, on the one hand, I've heard like mind altering drugs, but uh, is a way to describe these things. But also, I mean, I've been told yeah. that alcohol also <laughs> alter, your mind, alter your mind state a little bit. <laughs> you never get that far in Jesuitical <laughs> with No, we turn off the microphones before that happens. <laughs> I think mind altering has a lot of baggage with it that a lot of people in like drug policy advocacy worlds would not like. So I just want to say that. But mood altering for sure. Another word is psychotropic, meaning that there are alkaloids, there's a noticeable psychological effect on the human brain when taking these things. And within that giant category of mood altering or psychotropic uh, is a whole bunch of different categories. And the category differences can sometimes matter a lot because apart from just an academic discussion, some of these things do not mix uh, and can be extremely dangerous if mixed. But Alcohol, it's a depressant, and I think on at lower levels, heart opening. Um, but it's it's working by slowing things down, and uh, these are doing something totally different. They're working with a neurotransmitter called serotonin, uh, which is about balance and like mood stabilization. In fact, uh, when people take a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor which is a drug that they usually prescribe for depression. The reason that they do that is because it's moving the control switches around with respect to serotonin, this mood balance kind of based chemical and alcohol is not doing that. All right. So I'm very much a, a student of the dare generation. <laughs> like I, I got, Me too. Uh, yeah, I remember the lion <laughs> and those programs coming to scare us in school. Um, so I've, kind of like, you know, put things into there's alcohol, there's weed, and then there's everything else and they're all bad and you should never touch them if you don't want to like end up living on the street. Um, and I think for me, you know, that kind of like stuck in the there's this idea of with alcohol, you can in theory do it in moderation and you're in control, even though that's obviously not the case for everyone. Um, but that these drugs, like you are out of control, like you press the button and then you know, someone else is taking the reins of your mind. And so how true is that? And how much is that kind of like a stereotype of these drugs? Well, it is dose dependent. I mean, to a certain extent. So if you take one of these things and you take enough to cross the threshold of being able to feel it, you're going to feel that. And that's like, you're, you're there until it's done. Um, but what that's like and how in control you feel will vary depending on a lot of things. One, how much you take. Uh, two, how safe you feel, which is something that to a certain degree you can control beforehand. It's like that uh, Sun Tzu quote, uh, the battle is won before it has begun. Mm. Uh, that's a rough paraphrase. If you, if you don't, um, he was talking about having a bad trip, I'm sure. <laughs> he, he was, in fact. <laughs> well, everything in Eastern philosophy is about tripping, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it applies here as well. Uh, 
there's a, a notion of, of what's called set and setting. And the set means mindset. The setting means the people you're with, the room you're in, and how comfortable you feel in both of those areas has a lot to do with how control, in control you would feel, how good of an experience would be, what you would learn, a lot of things. So a lot of that needs to be attended to before you know, you put anything in your mouth or, you know, whatever other route of administration. Now, to the extent that you're comfortable, you've tried some of these drugs before, or I'm assuming so anyway. Why did you decide to embark on on these journeys and, and what did you experience? Yes, um, I, I have tried them. First thing I want to say is that for any of your audience members who you know, are interested in this sort of thing, but are worried about the illegality part of it, there is, there are lots of places where and ways where this can be done legally and safely. Um, You can go to Peru and do ayahuasca by retreats. There are retreats in Jamaica and the Netherlands for mushrooms. Uh, Across the border in Mexico, uh, there are Ibogaine clinics, uh, which is an African psychedelic that we haven't talked about yet and maybe won't, um, but it's there. Uh, Colorado and Oregon have both loosened their legislation in a couple of complicated ways that would take longer to talk about than probably would interest your uh, audience. But there are places where this can be done. So I just wanted to sort of like sort of mention that up front. We're not trying to get you to um, confess to breaking the law on this podcast. We don't usually do that with our guests. So offering that disclaimer. Yes. Um, but it's also advice uh, just in case anybody's interested. So I, I would consider them to be that what I find to be the most useful applications for me as a person and for, I think, probably Catholics is, and I am Catholic, so, you know, part of the reason I'm here is because I would, I, I, I think this is something that Catholics need to hear or would benefit from hearing, is uh, I would regard it as an accomplice, a kind of helper to prayer. And um, to give me a sense of what I mean by that, I, um, so, you know, I've always had trouble seeing God as father and it's it's not a gendered thing it's it's just parental like i just um like the idea that god loves me or will take care of me or something i i kind of i'm always thinking like oh yeah you know i'm, I'm actually really on my own aren't i uh and so this is like just one of the things that is one of the struggles in in my own faith and um i had an experience around this and it was actually part of a series dealing with this issue specifically over a long period of time. And this is where it can actually start to get therapeutic uh, as well. And um, I just started praying while on these things. And I said to God, I said, look, you know, I'm ready to be finally healed about this because a lot of the times when I talk about this and the setting's the right setting, I'll actually cry, you know, and I just, I want to be done like crying whenever I bring up like the fact that I have this issue. And so I said to God this one time, I said, you know what? like, not only do am I ready for this and do I want this, but like, you just got to do this. And I said, because I don't think I'm going to be a very good father if, you know, I don't get this sorted out. And then on top of that, if I really am Imago Dei, that means I've got a piece of you in me. And if I don't understand you, then I, I really don't even, I really don't even know myself. So, you know, I'm totally impoverished to do anything about this. You've really got to do something. And so all of a sudden I hear this voice and in psychedelic experiences, there are, uh, for the ones that are more visually oriented, there is a distinction between closed eye visuals and open eye visuals. And so closed eye visuals would be all the things you've heard about, you know, that are kind of trippy and scary and people, 
bananas running after people and whatever. Uh, the closed eye visual tends to be more geometric patterns. Like you close your eyes, you see geometric patterns. And then um, sometimes it'll feel like a dream where there, you can see actual stuff around you and you're kind of in this world. So this is a closed eye visual. Um, so I have on a mask like they often do in the studies. And I, um, I hear this voice and it says, do you really want this? Like, are you prepared to pay the cost, you know, of this, this kind of knowing God in this way? And the cost immediately flashed to me that I would have to be a priest and be celibate. And I'm not against that. I've always been open to it, but it's not anything I've ever really felt driven to or called to. And I wouldn't want to just do that without feeling called to it. And, but it sounds like the sort of thing God would say, like, there's this cost, like the, you know, the Protestant theologian Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book about it. Jesus says, count the cost. And like the builders who count the cost of the supplies and all that sounds like something God might say. And so I was about to argue with God, like, you know, like, wait a minute, you're telling me that this thing that some people just get automatically, you know, just because like, you know, for whatever reason they do, I've got to like earn or something like that by like being willing to make this like big, big commitment. And all I'm trying to do is ask for like the love of God. Um, and so I'm about to argue. And then all of a sudden I go, wait a minute, who said that? And I turn around and there's this demon behind me. And it doesn't look like anything out of Dante. It doesn't have a red, you know, it's not red, doesn't have a pitchfork or any of that kind of stuff. It looks like the like one of those cartoon dogs from the Hanna-Barbera cartoons and so I look at it and I say you got something to say to me and it kind of like it goes like it has this like little like whimper like like kind of cowers a little bit and I said yeah that's what I thought why don't you go back to whatever corner you came from and so it just like scampers off and I turn around to God and I say okay now where were we so then a couple of other things happen that aren't relevant to this story. Um, and, and then I decide I'm going to go outside and I sit like sit on this picnic table and I'm, I'm sitting on the, like where the table is and I've got my feet on the bench and I'm looking out at this, it's kind of a naturey looking kind of scene. And there's this little bird and it's like trying to get food and it's starting to look frustrated. It's like throwing grass all over the place, looking for a seed or whatever. And that verse from Matthew, I think, uh, maybe Luke, maybe both, uh, jumps into my head about the about the sparrows and mm -hmm. the lilies you know what i'm talking about like god loves us so much more than them and yet like we see how they cares for them etc and i'm looking at this bird and i'm like there is this whole wide world out here that this bird doesn't know anything about and yet like i love it like i just adore this little bird it's so cute i just i just i love it <laughs> and and then all of a sudden and you know my eyes are open but kinesthetically i this little boy like materializes to my right sitting next to me and it's supposed to be my son now i don't have any kids yet but it's my son and so i i, I point to the bird and i say hey you see that see that bird there like hopping around see how cute it is see how lovely it is see how great it is and he's like yeah yeah i love it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i see i see i see and i said i said that's how i feel about you and then I was like, oh, there it is. Like, that's how God feels about us. That's how he feels about me. And on top of that, I've also, in addition to being given a picture of what God thinks of me, I've also got a picture of what I would be like as a father. 
it, it sounds super powerful and like it unlocks a lot of things. And it also like it, it the way you're describing it also reminds me of the way that people talk about their dreams, um, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, Pope Francis has even said like, you know, that those are legitimate sources of like God working in your, in your life. Right. Um, yeah. Or, or inspiration, right? Like those are, you know, we see that in the Bible all the time. Like, you know, Joseph has dreams and that impacts the fate of, um, humankind. Um, right. Where, it's what clear does, that they mean something. <laughs> yeah, totally. And this might be a good point to shift of, to like, what what does the church say about uh, drugs writ large? Maybe if not psychedelics. I see it, uh, Brian has held up the catechism because he knew this question was coming. <laughs> All right, if you could direct us to paragraph number. <laughs> yeah, this is on page uh, 611 and it is uh, 2291, the paragraph. It says, the use of drugs inflicts very grave damage on human health and life. Their use, except on strictly therapeutic grounds, is a grave offense. Clandestine production of and trafficking in drugs are scandalous practices. They constitute direct cooperation in evil since they encourage people to practice as gravely contrary to the moral law. There are two things that need to be defined there. Like one, what what what's a drug? Because there's a right. fine line between medicine and drugs, and and what counts as therapeutic. So has right. I'm guess has the church provided any guidance on those definitions? Well, they've got this thing um, called uh, Church Colon Drugs and Drug Addiction, a pastoral handbook uh, that they published uh, in the early 2000s under JP2. Their principal concern in this document seems to be that people who take drugs are trying to escape reality and have a lot of fun. And I don't deny that these are these drugs are fun, but they're fun in a particular way. You kind of have to be weird to like this kind of fun uh, because it's it's a deeply introspective, deeply emotionally rich. All of these drugs are, I call them, lots of people call them heart medicines. A lot of times these things will force feelings upon the people who take them. And if that is not your dig, then like fun is not just not the right word for these things. But I'm really looking forward to an updated version of this or like you know, Francis's version of this kind of thing. We've learned so much more about why these things can be good since this document came out. So it's, it's, it's hard to evaluate, you know. And maybe even outside of that document, I think what people will typically hear, and you bring this up in your, in your paper, there are, there are some like general objections raised that are Mm. pretty universal. One, um, and you allude to them, one, it's that it's, um, the drug like inhibits your use of reason Right, yeah. and and that's that's a problem because God gave that to us. That's a gift, and we are abusing it. Um, and the right. and the other is um, that it's 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 hedonistic, as you mentioned. It's yeah. just it's purely like for the sake of pleasure, which um, the church doesn't, you know, say that. Particularly, I think Catholicism is very nuanced on pleasure. Um, of course, typically, right? And so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but when it you know airs into just like this image that maybe this is media produced of just like tripping for fun at parties or at clubs or something, that's sort of where yeah. it steers into sinful. It's true, and and you know, to be totally honest, I'm not even opposed to a world in which you know like this kind of thing is done at parties. It's uh, not all parties are created equal, you know, Um, like some parties are where you've got deeply heart connected people kind of all sitting on the couch. And if somebody's having a rough time, they just go talk to them and 
you know, it's, it's, it's like a beautifully connecting thing. Um, and then there are other parties where people don't really care about each other and just everybody's there for such an individualistically hedonistic, I guess, pursuit that mm. nobody else in the room matters. And those are two different kinds of parties. Would love to get so, invited to one of those parties, but it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's me spitballing on this. Um, if, if I want to take a drug for a spiritual kind of even religious, like a Catholic style reasoning, like the, like what I just described to you a little while ago, or if I want to take something for a therapeutic reason, and actually that story kind of ties the two together. Um, and I set up the conditions ahead of time in such a way that prevents me from doing things that would be against my values in normal waking life, if you like. Uh, and I have people there that I trust and nothing's going to go contrary to the way that I believe in living my life, et cetera. Then I think I'm still exercising a larger rationality in the sense that I have done something that is ultimately liberating, uh, you know, from a Catholic perspective. And am I not violating any of my values? Because you, you follow me? Yeah. Like reason but, in the sense of like, you are getting closer aligned with God's truth rather than yes. exercising your intellect, yeah. I suppose. I guess the thing yeah. I wonder about is like you do it, you do all that, you set the, you have the right settings, the right people, and then you have this experience, and it's like, how do you trust that experience? Like, how do you like? Was it really? I just would have this feeling like, was that really me? Because it's like a part of my brain that I can't access without this external substance, and like, and you mentioned like you. You saw a demon. So how do you make sure that because if you hadn't turned around and you thought that was the voice of God, you would have come out of your trip and gotten ordained and, <laughs> and had the best mistake. vocation story of all time, I think. Um, yeah. Like to follow up just to Ashley's questions practically, like did you have a spiritual director through this the kind of accompany you after this experience or during? I did not talk to my spiritual director about that experience. We were kind of on a break there for a little bit because, you know, parish life is insane. Sure. So, um, but uh, but yes, I talked to my spiritual director about, about these things. Uh, and uh, I actually talked through a lot of the article with him before I wrote it. Uh, so I do consider that for me, and I would advise any Catholic to make that part of the process. And I'm actually, I, I long for the day when there's a such thing as psychedelic spiritual direction. Did you know you could earn a master's degree focused in Franciscan theology anywhere in the world? That's right. This master's program from the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego is a blend of academic engagement and spiritual reflection. With its online format, the program is designed so you can learn at your own pace. You'll connect with fellow students and instructors in a respectful and down-to-earth environment. It's about learning to think critically, consider different views, and analyze sources and perspectives. The program emphasizes creating space for mutual respect, a true Franciscan value. Embark on a transformative 24-month journey with the world-renowned faculty and instructors from the Franciscan School of Theology. Visit sandiego.edu slash theologicalmasters to learn more about the Master of Theological Studies Franciscan Theology Program. 
That's sandiego.edu slash theological masters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What's, you know, spurred your paper and sort of, I mean, my own interest in this topic is um, I read a book by Michael Pollan a couple of years ago called How to Change Your Mind. And it's sort of about this, you know, renaissance in um, psychedelics and particularly using them in medical settings um, as, as therapeutic things for for uh, mm. things like depression, PTSD, addiction. Um, and they're the I'll skip the very thorough summary you give in your in your paper, but it's it's working, right? Like psychedelics are working as treatment for things that have have been treatment resistant prior to. Um, and so we we see a lot of this like becoming more legal, becoming more accepted, becoming more medicalized. And people are coming out of these experiences to, like becoming more in tune to spiritual things. Is that a good way of putting it? So first of all, um the the compounds do work. Um, you know, MAPS is in there. They've, they've completed their, thir- uh, their third phase three, uh, which means it's going to be ready for the public very what soon. Is, what is MAPS? Yeah, there's going to be lots of terms. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, they're the ones who have sponsored most of this research and um, not single-handedly, but largely responsible for like the fact that we're even having this conversation today. Um, and what they did was uh, make it possible for people to see MDMA as a treatment for PTSD through the studies that they did. And all of the people in their studies are treatment resistant, which means they've tried everything. They've tried all the different therapies. They've tried all the different drugs, uh, Paxil and Zoloft, et cetera. And nothing's worked. The average time spent with PTSD of the people in their studies was 17.6 years. Mm. And two thirds of those people in, I think all of the studies they did phase two and phase three, uh, came out no longer diagnosable with that disorder a year, a year afterwards. So it's insane. Like people who haven't been able to get rid of it for almost two decades, two thirds of them being like, yeah, like, I'm good. They are working. And there are similar stories that can be told for lots of the other things. There's also um, anxiety and depression are being studied, uh, OCD, autism, eating disorders, anything with a narrow psychological or behavioral uh, repertoire, by which I mean anything where we're dealing with a pattern where people are stuck in a groove pathways, if to use neuro, sort of neuro, neurological language. Um, and, and so these things tend to be good for those kinds of disorders where people are stuck in a kind of a rut because they are, another way of thinking about it is that psychedelics are pattern interrupters. They kind of get in there and mess up our hair a little bit. Uh, and so if you've got a really you know, tight pathway to you know, some disorder or association of one thing with another thing, it can get in there and mess that up. And then that's going to be really life-giving to people. Um, an example of, of a kind of disorder that it, it so far at least 
um, researchers are saying it's not good for is things like um, disassociative uh, identity disorder or bipolar or um, schizophrenia, because these things aren't based on a, a narrow psychological or behavioral uh, repertoire. It's there's all kinds of things going on and that's exactly the problem. Uh, and so that's a sort of way of thinking about what this works for and what, what it doesn't and why it works. Uh, now, what should we do with what we find out? Because of course, that's not all that happens. It's not just the, it's not just the disorder that they're healing. They're also, they're healing it precisely through an experience that also has to be contextualized, theologized, talked about, which is going to overlap with, with what you're asking about, Ashley, which is, should we believe what happens in there? And I think my answer is maybe, because uh, yes and no, I, I think discernment is required always. Um, and so spiritual directors are important. The tradition is important. Scripture is important. And so these things have to be evaluated in the kind of larger context of our, of our, of our faith, if we're Catholics. But some things in there can be believed. I mean, like one time I was on MDMA and I said, and you know, I've had it a couple of times and it, I actually got kind of anxious on it early on, but you know, I said, you know what, I really think there's something here for me to learn from this. And so I did it one time and that night it was like, I was never so touched both emotionally and in some cases physically by so many people. And, and I said, it was just like all my walls were down like that are normally up between me and other people in social interactions. And I said, wow, this must be what heaven is like. And I'm not saying that heaven is a serotonin dump, but I, something like that, where the barriers between me and other people caused by the fall are just not there. And I, I ran this by a friend of mine who's a religious guy. And uh, I said, you know, is this crazy? And he said, he said, when I first had it, I said, this is the kingdom of God. And I said, okay, so we're on the right track then. Um, now, should we believe an experience like that? Like, yeah, because it matches everything else that we already believe that we're getting from our other sources of truth and the revelation. And on top of that, it makes it palpable. It's like now, even though I'm not on that now, I remember it. And like, when I think about heaven, when I think about the kingdom of God, when I think about the people way that I want to be with other people, I'm thinking about that moment. And I'm like, do I remember what it felt like to be there? Do I remember the way I felt about other people whenever I was in that space? And I'm like, yeah, I could get back there, you know, and it's, it's not as strong. I don't feel it in that way, but I, I'm, I'm kind of inhabiting that again. And I'm like, yeah, like I can be that in my day-to-day -day life. And that's ultimately what these drugs are for. They're for what happens afterwards in our lives. So judging by their fruits. Yeah. Well, there's like two things for Catholic, that I see is like interesting for Catholics. And one is like there's an alleviation of suffering that happens when it's used in a therapeutic setting, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, to describe yes. someone who's been carrying, you know, PTSD for 17 years to have that <laughs> healed, I mean, it, I'd be hard pressed uh, to deny that to someone. But secondly, is it seems that a, a side effect of treatment is that it predisposes you to theologizing or being open to the spirit. And my worry is that the church is not paying attention to, like people in marketing talk about like, uh, if your consumer is intent on purchasing or something, they talk about consumer intent. Like if, if I Google, mm -hmm. I want to buy um, 
basketball shoes, then the ads that are served to me, I'm going to be higher, more likely to click on them because I am I have a high intent to purchase them. It seems to me that we've got people coming off of these trips with a high intent to uh, get into spirituality and religion. Um, and there's kind of a vacuum right now of people willing to sell it to them. Yeah. And th there is actually a study on DMT, which is a, a smokable psychedelic that puts you in the other world. Um, and um, people often report uh, encounters with quote unquote entities. And the reason that such vague language is because sometimes it's elves and sometimes it's <laughs> grasshoppers and sometimes it's, you know, like robots. And sometimes it's like little like like people with purple skin or whatever. It's just a bunch of different things. And over half of the people that had identified as atheists before the study were no longer identifying as atheists afterwards. Um, and they've done another study with po the polysubstance study with a bunch of different um, like LSD and, and psilocybin and psilocybin and um, DMT and kind of done a, a polysubstance study like that that had similar kinds of results. This, I think that study was with people who had had a God encounter experience. And I think two thirds of the people that were atheists before that um, were, were no longer atheist afterwards. So, uh, I mean, and you know, it's, for anybody in the audience that might be atheist, like it's, it's a compl complicated thing. It's not like they became Catholics, you know, afterwards. I was but... like, wait, are you telling me we have a, we have a pill that we can give people to make them Catholic? It would help your pro problem with the pews, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we shouldn't like, you know, manhandle the data, but it, what is clear is that they're no longer comfortable calling themselves atheists, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the tune of, you know, over half or, or two thirds. And so, uh, what that says to me in relation to your point is that there is a kind of spirituality, but also a, I guess, non-dual spirituality that's possible here as well, meaning that it's possible to develop a relational spirituality, a God-oriented uh, spirituality, as opposed to, um, you know, just a sort of like what being one with everything or an Eastern kind of style. Well, and, and the Catholic Church does have a tradition of, of mystics and mystical experiences. It's not it's not all St. Thomas Aquinas all the way through. Um, so it seems like there there could be a place for it in some sense. But like, I don't know, I think maybe the discomfort is like you're taking a shortcut like. Mm. <laughs> Teresa of Avila had to like pray really hard for a really yeah, long time yeah, yeah. to have a mystical experience, and here you are just like popping a pill. So does that take away the the meaning of totally it? Totally fair question. Taking a drug does not make God do anything. Um, I look at it as I think there's a there's a quote I see it a lot. I sometimes see it attributed to Kierkegaard. Sometimes I see it attributed to C.S. Lewis. It says that like prayer doesn't change God; it changes the person that's praying or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. I don't know who actually said the quote, if either of them or anybody that is you know, known says it, but um, I think of it a little bit like that. It, it, it loosens up the soil in me and makes it more able for me to hear like maybe God, if God decides to show up, but it's not like, like I don't think of these things as agents for religious experience as such. I'm not even sure that's a thing. I mean, there's enough in theology that that really complicates that whole debate about whether we're even talking about a discrete phenomenon, you know, that's transhistorical. So I'm not, I'm agnostic on that, but I don't think that whatever religious experience is or whatever mysticism is that these things necessarily do that. And I don't know that the question of whether they do or not is even interesting to me, at least. I don't, I don't know if it's a really helpful question. The real question is, 
is it wrong to like grease the wheel, so to speak, to make it easier for me to hear God if God decides to speak? Are you hopeful there we'll be able to develop a conversation around this? Because I, I mean, I feel like the church already has this caveat where it's like, oh, if it's you know used for medicinal reasons, great. Um, but what you're describing is sort of using it actually for almost like a- as an aid to prayer or or spiritual yeah. direction. Um, well, yeah. My own opinion is that we have we as the church have ceded far too much ground to like the secular medical establishment. Love doctors, love living in this time period when there's tons of great medical in- interventions, um, but they're not theologians. And many of them don't even care about what we care about. I mean, they care about healing and we care about healing so we can get together on that, but they don't necessarily care about it for the same reasons. And doctors definitely make mistakes. Like we've just been through this giant crisis with the opioid thing. And that's a very complex debate. And I talk about it in a very complex way in the article, but they're definitely part of the issue is that our medical system is has has incentives that are misaligned with what would be important to us as Catholics. And so I don't think we should just be like, well, if a doctor says it's okay, then it's medical and then there's nothing to, for us to say as Catholics. Uh, I think we need to get in there and say, okay, well, first of all, why is it medicinal? Because a lot of the new companies that are springing up are wanting to like, sort of delete the psychedelic experience out of the out of the compound they're trying to isolate and like keep it so that they can say oh okay well there must be something where it's like flipping a switch in a in, on a protein or a you know a neuron somewhere or something let's go ahead and flip that switch but let's so it get still rid of- works but it's not fun anymore <laughs> yes exactly well fun to you and me maybe <laughs> oh, <yeah>. but <laughs> yeah and a lot of people in the psychedelic world like the advocacy and research and policy world uh, are are really against this because they're like the whole point is the experience because it's the experience where you get in and you get honest with yourself about your stuff and you you let yourself feel and you process and you talk to other people and you go to your therapist and like it's all like that's that's how the healing actually happens by you know discontinuing the repression that we've been doing or something over some issue and so if if we're going to if we're going to look at this as Catholics, we have to say, okay, why is this working? And if it's even partly because of the experience that we would otherwise condemn, then we have to reevaluate like what we think of intoxication, what we think, what, what intoxication even is, uh, and how we're going to sort of dialogue with the fact that this is an experience that we would normally outlaw, but that might be the exact engine of the healing and do some better theology around that. And I'm not saying the theology has been bad. It's just been absent because we've been giving it to the doctors to tell us, you know, what our spirits are. And I just don't think we should keep doing that. All right. Well, Brian, this has been fascinating. I've learned a lot. Um, But we do have one last question before we let you go, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, hallucinated or Or not (laughs) real uh who would it be and why i I appreciate you adding that extra bit for me um uh, first of all i'm a huge fan of your show i I listen to it all the time oh thank Um, you so much you know so so i so i I, so you saw this this. coming (laughs) i've actually been thinking about this for a long time um if i could canonize anybody 
I would canonize my father. Mm. Um, he's deceased. And he, um, he was, um, he was a salesman. And, uh, when we all went to his funeral, um, a bunch of his like fellow sales colleagues came up, um, to us as a group and told us that they said, look, you know, not going to lie. This is a dirty business. Uh, he said, but we just want you to know that your father was the most ethical man that we ever encountered in our, in our business. And, um, that obviously meant a ton to all of us, but, uh, it, I just, I've always thought it would be cool if, if, uh, I mean, St. Lucy is the patron saint of sales men and sales people. Um, and I've always just thought it would be, she's great, but I just always thought it would be cool if, if, if there, if we had a patron saint of sales people that, uh, actually was in the business. Was in sales. I, yeah. And I, I think, reasonable. I think my, I think my dad would be a good candidate for that. He what was, was your dad's name? Uh, Thomas, Thomas McCarthy. He's a deeply principled man and, um, an example to all of us even still. All right, St. Thomas. Well, Brian, uh, thanks so much for, for coming on the show, for doing some good theology. One more time, the title of the article is Christianity and Psychedelic Medicine, A Pastoral Approach, and we will link to that in our show notes. I hope this is not your your final word on the topic. I'm hoping to read more as you as we, we figure all this stuff out, uh, and we'll, we'll have you back you. on appreciate it. when we do. <laughs> I would love that, and I'd love being on. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. as one friend speaks to another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. What do you have, Zach? So I'm up this week and I have a scripture reflection for American media. So I'm looking at uh, this Friday's reading. So today, if you are listening, the first day it comes out. Um, and at the very end of the first reading, we get um, one of like St. Paul's famous assertions that he, he boasts in his weakness. Um, and I wanted to just like interrogate that a little bit more um, because I feel like that thing gets tossed around a lot in in homilies and in small groups. And I feel like it's way more confusing and complicated than it than it sounds, right? Like how do I how do I know my weaknesses? What does it mean to boast in them? So I'm like going through this whole process in my head. It's like, all right, I actually think it's really tough to know my own weaknesses. So that's that's a process. And then it's like, okay, what are the weaknesses that I, I just have and should accept and which are the ones that I should work on? Um, and then how do I then go from that to like asking God, uh, okay, what does it mean to brag about them and then brag about them? There's like this whole like workflow I start putting into my, into my brain. And I was talking to um, Father Eric about this and he was just kind of like, oh, it's so cute that you think you can like dictate that whole process that way. <laughs> it sounds like you really want to control. Is one of your weaknesses controlling <laughs> <Yeah>. everything? <laughs> and, you know, manipulating uh, all sense of your reality, um, which, you know, hit me like a sack of bricks. But I, I, I'm, you know, I, I really do feel like this is a pretty confusing thing because like, um, what, what does that mean to you when you hear boast about weakness? Yeah, so maybe... My weakness is I need like practical. I need this to be practical. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I get the idea of acknowledging yourself as as a sinner, 
and acknowledging that, you know, so my weak, I'm weak, I need God. But like, practically speaking, what does it mean to boast about that? Like, I'm, I'm just going around telling all my friends, hey, you know, I'm, I really need to go to confession. I'm, I'm in a state of sin. <laughs> or, <laughs> or like answering like that job interview question, yeah. like, tell me what your greatest weakness is. Yeah. It's like, you care too much. I do care too much. No, something that did help me as I was thinking about this over the past few hours is I've had experiences where, you know, you have this friend who like in your mind they're perfect and then they tell you something that they're struggling with and you're like oh my gosh like mm. i didn't know you struggled with mm-hmm. i struggle with that too and and knowing that you you know it's not that you're happy that they're struggling but you you acknowledge it it, it deepens your relationship and so I, I don't know exactly how that applies to to faith but i think even, or maybe it does because you hear about saints and you're like, oh, they're perfect. But then you like learn this very human aspect of them. And it's like, oh, OK, if, if you're if you're a saint, but you also have that weakness, then like maybe I can get there. Well, I think it's like this, like what's your view of like the human person? It, like if a person who is like a perfect has it all together and is religious, they have it all together because God is just like, you know, providing for them all the time and they're, you know, making them super awesome. And that's why they're great. Or is it that like in our like weaknesses, that's where, where God comes in and like it makes his love known and makes the spirit known. Like like the like the synod when I mentioned earlier, right? Like the the document says like this is going to be inadequate and it's going to be incomplete. But in that incompleteness, that is where the spirit comes in and, and animates us. Um, and, and as far as like boasting, I, the closest analogy I had was like, um, it should like determine your disposition. You should not come off as a person that looks like they have it all together in, in, in a certain sense, right? Um, like people should kind of like know that like, you know, you're not perfect. You don't have it all together. And somehow God's love radiates from that. Like the way that like, I don't necessarily go around bragging about um, being married all the time. But if it's like an integral part of my life, people should probably figure that out uh, pretty quickly with within talking to me for, you know, uh, 30 minutes or something, right? That should come up or they should notice the ring on my finger. It's something, it should just be made apparent. And in that sense, that's how I was taking bragging, but mm. I don't know, still got a lot to to think about and figure out what my- You're I, only I, on step two of your eight step plan to exactly. figure well, out this passage. Well, I'd have to first find any weaknesses <laughs> to brag about. I'm ready to brag about them, but I just can't figure out what they are. With that, I will, uh, <laughs> Ashley's looking at me in disbelief that I don't, <laughs> she's ready to name my weaknesses that I could start to brag about more. Um, but that's what I got this week. Nice. All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes and Kevin Christopher Robles, who also provided sound engineering with production assistance from Cristobal Spielman. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.